day in the American dream probably goes something like this. At your lake house, you wake up around 6am, get dressed, and breakfast is ready for you, prepared by the person that works for you at your house. Then after saying goodbye to your family, you get into your Mercedes, drive to your job, where you are hopefully a doctor, a lawyer, a business executive, something of the sorts where you have people working for you. For lunch, you go somewhere where lunch is quickly prepared for you. And you go back to work before returning home where your kids got back from school, where your spouse got back from work, and the house cleaned for you. And supper is also prepared for you. On Sundays, you probably go out in your boat with your family. And on vacations, you go to Europe and travel around seeing the work done by people from thousands of years before you. This is probably what most of us want and imagine having, a comfortable life where everything is prepared and all you do is casually enjoy life and own a nice house, a nice car, and preferably also a boat, maybe even a plane later. Nothing wrong with any of this. Well, Sort of nothing wrong, until here in college, I took a class on the philosophy of education, and it revolutionized my way of thinking about life and what it's all about. This is Dr. David Shin who is teaching the class. He's also the president of the college. And nothing like mom, right? Mom's like, well, they put mom up to it. They say, hey, mom, can you go to Jesus? And so she goes <laughs> trying a back room somewhere. An idea that we probably all grew up with is that we go to college so that we can get educated, work a good job, make good money, so that then we can have things served to us. The problem with this reasoning is that in the end, all you have to show for your education, work, and life are all the things that were served to you. Your spot on the parking lot of contributions to the world is vacant. So we decided to sit down with Dr. Shin and try to clarify this issue with him. I think growing up, the son of immigrants, it's the natural tendency to want upward mobility. Uh, my parents, first-generation immigrants from Korea, and in my culture, it's basically you're doctor, lawyer, dentist, or you are nothing. And I think among my Korean-American counterparts and, and contemporaries that I grew up with, it was all about upward mobility, namely economic mobility. And so education became the path for the that American dream and the actualization of a certain status in terms of vehicles, in terms of cars, in terms of future home. And so, yeah, I, I think I, I had those natural presuppositions being in America, being the son of Asian immigrants to this country. And there's that strong push. And even in pastoral ministry, I think that that idea still carries over. No one wants that podunk church out in the middle of nowhere. Everyone wants that large church in 
Loma Linda or, or Varian Springs, or you want to be a conference official, or you want to be a GC official or GC president. I, I think that this these ideas of culture and your family upbringing really lend itself towards upward mobility and the ascendancy model, whether it be economics, whether it be position, status, or even in ministry, it comes to leadership positions so that Everyone wants their parents to look at them and say like, oh, you know, that's my son. And I think that's a big thing in, in Korean culture, just to be real. It's like, oh, my son is this, you know? And, and you find with parents of immigrants, at least I find, like my mom talks to her friends and it's like, hey, what's your son doing? My son's doing this and he's got 100K nest egg and and he's a dentist he's a doctor or whatever and then and then when it comes to me it's like oh he's <laughs> in self-supporting work he, he, you know what i mean uh living in a mobile home and uh, uh getting a stipend annually and so there's there's this tendency even among parents of immigrants to kind of like brag on their children and and the status is is basically like look my son's arrived based on his net worth, based on his income, and, like, what were you doing as a parent that your child should be in this certain certain predicament that he is? In secular circles, perhaps it is, but in Christian circles, it's never an explicitly stated thing. My parents never said to me, I want you to make the big bucks so we can tell all our Asian friends how big of the bucks you make. I doubt any parent really says that, but actions and words can have dichotomies. Even being raised Adventist, I still feel this silent pressure of one-upmanship. I currently go to a school whose name is an enigma to pronounce or spell. It's also out in the middle of nowhere. There aren't too many bragging rights for going here. And compared to all my childhood friends, the pressure feels real. When all your childhood friends are going off to become medical or science professionals, while you're in a little missionary college, the pressure feels real even if not explicitly stated. Compared to my friends, the trajectory of my career is more or less like the trajectory of cinder blocks in the Mariana Trench. So I think that the the cultural presuppositions are real. My own experience has been... has been molded and shaped by culture. But praise the Lord for scripture that leads us to surrender our presuppositions and our cultural upbringing. We live in a world where greatness is determined largely by materialistic value. It's not easy to clear off the underlying edge of materialism, even if you go to church. It's not even easy to realize that you have those underlying ideologies of greatness. We might not aspire to become millionaires or billionaires per se, but we sure want to. And we sure want enough. Enough or whatever that means. I mean, at what point do we ever think we have enough? I think true Christianity strikes at the heart and reveals the underlying ideologies we actually believe in. I I think when I first came to Watchdale's Academy... That was the beginning of my presuppositional challenge and journey because there's a certain element of egalitarianism here. It doesn't matter who you are. 
Uh, everyone's splitting wood. Everyone's working in the cafeteria. It doesn't matter if you're the spoiled rich kid from the suburbs or, you know, the country bumpkin that came here. It's like everyone is doing the same thing. Everyone's washing the same dishes. And there is no no caste. And especially in the circles that we're in, in terms of true education and the idea of manual training and manual labor, I think that was the beginning of my presuppositional revision because it's naturally assumed in my culture that the white-collar job is you've arrived and you hire out the blue-collar manual training. You hire out people to clean your toilet. But here it's like everybody's got to clean toilets, you know. Everybody's got everybody's to chop wood. Everybody's got to do dishes. It doesn't matter who you are. If you've come from a place where intellectual training is the step stool of greatness, then the idea of manual training is, well, to put it bluntly, humiliating. When was the last time you saw a doctor change the oil in his own car? But think of it like this. Does the doctor even know how to change the oil in his own car? We naturally assume yes. After all, it's a doctor. He's smart enough to do that. But a lot of times... We like to hide our inability to do things with our ability to pay someone else to do it. The reality that we have no idea how to do some basic and perhaps necessary things is perhaps equally humiliating as having to do those things ourselves. And I think that was the beginning of like, hey, it, it, this, there, there is no dichotomy between the, the manual training and the mentor training. If you go on Google and search for the most famous or successful people on earth, you'll find people who generally aren't doing manual labor. You'll find actors, politicians, singers, and business people. You don't find celebrity farmers or famous janitors, or a guy that works at a lawn care company that's got a gazillion fans. Nope. And this says something about our culture. So that was the beginning of this this notion that maybe my cultural presuppositions in regards to manual training and the role of servants and custodians. Of course, we don't have servants. We have service industries. We kind of made it nicer. But, but that, that's kind of frowned upon in my culture. Uh, so I, I think my journey in academy and Christian schools, Christian education, namely Adventist education, was the beginning of that, that revision in terms of my cultural presuppositions needing to be surrendered. There's an annual ministerial meeting we had to be in, in the conference that I was at. And it's like every four years, there's not every four years, but it takes four years toward ordination and everyone's on this ordination track. So everyone gets together, young pastors, and there was a certain group talk that you do in between sessions. And it's interesting what the talk is like. And these are colleagues of mine. And it's always, someday, you watch out, David, I'm going to be ministerial director, brother. Right? And you're going to work for me. And, and someone else is like, hey, I think you make a good secretary or conference president or, or union or division or I'm going to be youth director. Like in my conversations, no one ever said, I want to pastor a five-church district in Escanaba, in the Upper Peninsula in the middle of nowhere where there's more cows than people. No one said that. No one said that. 
Yep, there's fame and fortune in the church too, in case you're wondering. In 2019, I began studying theology at the Adventist Seminary in Brazil. On our first day of class, all the freshies shuffled in, wearing black suits, white shirts, red ties. And then, because my dad was one of the professors, some of the students knew me. On that first day, I experienced something I'll never forget. Big dreams augmented in a way that would impress even the wildest dreamers. One of the new students walks over to me and says, Hey, you gonna be the president of the division one day? I'll be the dean of the seminary. He winks, laughs, then walks off. Everyone wanted to to go up. And you can see that in the disciples of Jesus in the New Testament. It's like, this is probably just days before the crucifixion. If you look at the chronology of the narrative and and James and John have the audacity to ask their mom to go and ask Jesus who's going to be the greatest or who's going to have the seats right next to Jesus and and that word leaked out and then it it went into the upper room dynamic and so Jesus had to 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 correct that by his own modeling and his own example maybe that's kind of like us when we want to make it big right I mean, I don't want to be a nobody. But John did end up almost like a nobody. Island, criminals, a foiled attempt at killing the apostle by boiling him in oil. Did anyone even know where he was? But John didn't get there overnight. Back when he was young, he wanted to make it big too. Israelite culture was skewed. After hundreds of years, Israelite tradition became a thick stew everyone ate from. Successful rich priests that strode around in their gilded robes were blessed by God. Fishermen? No way. Israelite culture said that God was frowning on the lower classes of society. The homeless, the widows, the poor orphans, and the fishermen had committed some great sin that made God frown on them and keep them in the lower cultural echelon. Cultural presuppositions ran deep. They still run deep today. So you can see that this idea of upward mobility is not is not erased from your psyche, even at conversion, even after accepting Christ. The Lord still has to work with us, even in ministry. And I've seen individuals that really strive for upward mobility. And I tell you, there's a characteristic that is common it's like you're never satisfied with your with your position. I know individuals that are constantly moving because they think that they're they're above the task that God has given them for that time. It's like, oh, this is beneath me. Why why should I get a three church district? I'm really good enough for for PMC, some people say, or or one of these larger churches. And and they kind of bounce around. But then I see other individuals that are just faithful in whatever God has given them, and they're not even seeking the position, but then the Lord says, hey, you've been faithful in your field. Uh, I'm going to call you to something more. And you can see this pattern of passive ascendancy. The individual that is just faithful in the little tasks, quote-unquote, whatever tasks they've been given, and then God says, hey, I'm going to call you to to more responsibility. And 
I think it's important to note that we're not faithful so that God can call us up. You know, we can get into this thing. Oh, Lord, I'm being faithful. Okay, now where's my where's my call, Lord? Where's my call? That's not how it works. God doesn't deal purely in transactions. God works more relationally. In other words, God cares more about his relationship to you than what he can get out of you. And let's be honest, God can really do things on his own if he wanted to. But God is love. And so he cares primarily about having your heart before having your hands. It's like the prayer in Psalms 51 verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. It's not about spitting out the correct quiz answer to get the ticket into upward mobility. It's about the service of love. It's not about how little I can give to God. It's about how much God has given for me. And look, upward mobility is never guaranteed. Service is guaranteed. (laughs) Service is universal. Everyone's going to serve. But there's no guarantee. Look, only one person can be general conference president at a time. So, so I, I don't want us to get this idea of like, oh, Lord, I'm serving you. Okay, where's my call to be this position? That is not a guarantee, but all of us are called to serve. And so I think we need to keep that in our perspective. We don't do service so that we can get the promotion and be like, oh, Lord, remember the, the theology of passive ascendancy. Okay, where's my call? All right. <laughs> That's not what this is about. And I, I think we just need to recognize that, look, some people— I would say the vast majority of us are, are never going to get called to the limelight. That's the reality, at least on earth. But from heaven's perspective, the universal perspective, what you're doing is precious in his sight. And from a universal perspective, you are in the limelight. You just don't know it. One of the things that was a very powerful illustration for me of of the power of service was, was really by modeling an example. It's kind of an indirect answer to that question. I had a conference president that, that really showed this to me. Now, in the particular conference that I worked at, at camp meeting, it was one of those dynamics where, where you could really see, you could really see uh, a push for upward mobility. Now we'd all arrive at camp meeting and there was a job that everyone wanted to avoid like the plague. And that was driving stakes, driving these six foot tall stakes into the ground. And it was jarring. It was exhausting. And there were individuals that the stake driver would catch on the top of the stake and then it would hit them in the head and they had to be taken to the emergency room, you know, with, with, profuse bleeding from the head, you know, blisters. And, and you were driving stakes for like days, days, hundreds of stakes. You were given a map and they took like the smallest pastor, me, and, and put him in charge of a stake crew. So I had my own stake crew. I'm like, this is, this is, this is interesting. So I, I was not only I was not only in this role, but it was like I was given the stake crew. So I was directing all these guys. I had to lead by example. And so every camp meeting the first day that night, I I couldn't sleep very well because I was sore. I mean, just your body is aching. And everyone 
wanted out of that position. They they wanted they wanted something else. But I got it every year that I was in this particular conference. Every year. And I was in this conference for like 12 years. Every year that was my job for 12 years. So to give you an idea of how I became okay with that. God's <laughs> like here, 12 years, state crew, camp meeting. Well, and, and what made it difficult for us was like the conference officials drove around in their golf carts while we're out there driving these stakes. And to be honest, I wasn't upset, but I was, I was envious. And I said, look, someday, someday I'm going to be on one of those golf carts. I'm going to ascend. We probably don't say it like that, but if we said it like it was, it would sound probably much like that. I will ascend. Our version tends to sound more mundane. But look at what Ellen White says. Quote, The strife for the highest place was the outworking of that same spirit, which was the beginning of the great controversy in the worlds above, and which had brought Christ from heaven to die. The desire for self-exaltation had brought strife into the heavenly courts and had banished a multitude of the hosts of God. Had Lucifer really desired to be like the Most High, he would have never deserted his appointed place in heaven. For the Spirit of the Most High is manifested in unselfish ministry. Lucifer desired God's power, but not his character. He sought for himself the highest place, and every being who is actuated by his spirit will do the same. Thus, alienation, discord, and strife will be inevitable. Dominion becomes the prize of the strongest. The kingdom of Satan is a kingdom of force. Every individual regards every other as an obstacle in the way of his own advancement, or a stepping stone on which he himself may climb to a higher place. And I remember one of my friends... He got one of those golf carts. Oh man, I was so I was so jealous. He got one of those golf carts and he rolled up all smug and he's like, "Hey, what's up, David?" And I was like, "Oh, my brother." I was like, "I see you, man. I see you." And and then and then I remember one day I'm out there, I'm out there driving the stakes with my with my crew and and the conference president rolls up. And we're like, oh, you know, and so we're like, oh, you know, get, you know, driving those stakes harder and be like, oh, elder, how's it going? Hot day, isn't it? Because if those stakes weren't straight, they would make us pull them all up. And so the conference president rolls up. We're like, how you doing, elder? And, and, and I'll never forget it. He descended off his golf cart, put on his gloves and shoulder to shoulder the rest of us unordained elders I wasn't even an elder unordained ministers like myself he drove stakes for hours hours and I was like where you go I will go (laughs) where you die I will die and there will I be buried. I will be in this conference for the rest of my life. I mean, it did something to me. You know, when I, when I saw the conference, he didn't have to do that. He was a busy man. When I saw the conference president, like, descend into service, it did something to me. And I was like, wow. And, and I think 
That's what happens with Jesus. When we see his eternal condescension, because the Bible, spirit of prophecy, indicate that Jesus will forever retain the human nature. Think about the implications of that. Ellen White indicates that it would have been infinite in humiliation for Jesus to take on Adam's nature before the fall. But, but you think about Jesus taking on post-Adam in his fallen state, you know, and, and of course he's going to be in the glorified state for eternity, but even that is infinite condescension. So we have this model for the ceaseless ages of eternity of an individual that is eternally in that, in that state, yet he's glorified. And I think that that's what prompts worship, adoration, praise, an outflowing of love because of the revelation of who God is. And that is the theology and the philosophy that really should drive us in our service for the Lord Jesus is, is the vision of a God that condescended, quote-unquote, to an infinite level that we can't even comprehend. And for us to think like, hey, <laughs> that in ministry, in service for the Lord Jesus, that the Lucifer model of upward ascendancy can have any part of heaven's culture is really is really misguided. But I praise God for grace and that he works with us where we're at and that through experiences like, like the conference president coming down, we, we can really see uh, a vision of, of what God did. You know, that's analogous and it doesn't even do justice to what Jesus did. But I think in the end, um, it's lessons like that that are a reminder of the beauty and the love of God that, that touches us and then moves us to not make it about status, position, economics, or even perception, but to, to make it really about our response to what God has done for us. <laughs>